Welcome to On Cities with host Carrie Pennebod. Over the next hour, you'll learn from Carrie and her guests how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Now, here is Carrie. Welcome to On Cities. My name is Carrie Pennebad, and this show is dedicated to the design of our cities. Cities are amongst the greatest of human endeavors. They are the backdrop for our lives and the legacy that we leave for future generations to inhabit. I've come to understand that the quality of our daily lives, our health, the health of our planet, our sense of connection, and even our happiness is directly influenced by the design of our built environment. And yet we seldom discuss what makes great cities and how can we work together to design a better world. Today, I'm delighted to introduce my next guest, Dr. Topeka K. Sam. Topeka is the CEO of the Ladies of Hope Ministries, an organization whose mission is to help formerly incarcerated women transition back into society through education, entrepreneurship, spiritual empowerment, and advocacy. She's also the president of Epic Financial, TKS Ventures, and Faces and Voices, Inc. Topeka serves on numerous boards, including the Marshall Project, Operation Restoration, and the United Justice Coalition. Since her release from federal prison in 2015, Topeka has also served as the 2015 Beyond the Bars Fellow and a 2016 Justice and Education Scholar, both from Columbia University. She also serves as the director of the Dignity Campaign for Cut 50, where she has led the bipartisan national effort to pass 20 pieces of legislation restoring dignity for incarcerated women. As though this were not enough, Topeka was appointed a UN Goodwill Ambassador for Social Justice, and in 2020, she received a full presidential pardon for her incredible work to advance the causes of formerly incarcerated women. Most recently, Topeka has been working with 44 Blue Productions to develop scripts for TV and film inspired by her fight to change many of the problems that plague female incarceration. She's been featured in Vogue, in Essence Magazine, The New York Times, Variety Magazine, and the list seems to go on and on. Topeka, you're a trailblazer, and I'm so happy to be speaking with you today. Thank you so much for having me. Wow. You know, sometimes we work so hard, we don't even get to hear all the things that we've been able to accomplish. Um, but thank you for such a beautiful introduction. I'm so happy Thanks. to be here. I'm happy to be speaking with you, Topeka. Topeka, our early childhood experiences shape many of our views of the world. Can you tell uh, our listeners where you grew up and how that experience shaped your views about community and society? Absolutely. So I grew up in Manorville, New York. It's a suburb in Long Island. Um, it was beautiful. You know, my family had a beautiful home, uh, sat on about an acre of the land, uh, big pool in the backyard, full basketball court, um, circular driveway, leave like four bedrooms, a full basement, like all the things. Um, and in my neighborhood, we were the only family of color. And so my parents um, were raised in the city. My mom in the Bronx and my father in Harlem. And they wanted something different for us. So they felt that they wanted to, you know, give what they thought was the American dream while being able to build their own home from the ground up in a newly developed community. Uh, and it was, I thought everyone lived like that, obviously, because everyone around me did. Um, it was for me being around a community of people while we all didn't look the same, um, that we all had parents, mom and dads in the home who you know worked really hard to provide, you know, our lives. And so that's what I thought, you know, the world was. Yeah, so it seems like a pretty idyllic upbringing. 
Yeah, I know that actually now, (laughs) but (laughs) I thought everybody lived like that, you know, so. So, you know, you went to school, you went to high school, you graduated Mm -hmm. from high school and you Mm -hmm. decided to attend Morgan State University, a historically black college. Um, Topeka, what made you decide to study there and how did that environment differ from uh, your home? Yeah, so when I got to, you know, through high school um, and it was time to go to college, I, as a black girl, um, wanted to be around other black kids. And so I was looking to find a sense of connectedness of belonging. Again, while my friends were my friends and love my friends, even today, still my friends, um, I was able and fortunate enough to go to the city on the weekends. My parents had a Carvel franchise in Brooklyn and um, two restaurants in Harlem. And we went to Harlem School of the Arts and I learned to play piano classically and the flute. And my brother sang for the Metropolitan Opera. And, you know, we did all the things. Um, But I was still only able to be around kids of color um, and others on the weekend. So when it was time to go to college, I was like, I want to go to a black school. And I chose Morgan State University because it was close to New York, meaning it wasn't too far away, but far enough. (laughs) Um, Being my first experience, being away from my family um, by myself for college. And so the difference in that was, you know, being one always like the only black child in my class um, to now being one of many. And so while I was excited because it was something that I've always dreamed and yearned for, I felt, you know, there was an emptiness that I didn't know I had until I got through that environment. But then also with the culture shock because, you know, it was a different environment. And now I'm in Baltimore city and I'm around kids who are from this city And people would, you know, say, well, you talk like you're white, you know, or you're pretty to be dark skinned. And I'm like, well, I'm pretty, but what dark skin have to do with it, you know? And I didn't even really understand all of these, um, you know, of what I know now to be colorism and different types of um, issues that plague communities of color, you know, and whether you are African-American, you know, they have this ideology of, you know, dark skin versus light skin. But also, you know, in Spanish communities, it's the same, you know, Um, I've learned through some of my Dominican friends who are darker skin and my Cuban friends who are um, lighter skin. It is, um, you know, something that goes through our communities. And so, you know, everything was different and it began to shape um, who I thought I should be um, in order to begin to be accepted, you know, in my life. Well, maybe we can delve into this because while you were at Morgan State University, uh, you made a series of decisions that changed the direction of your life. Can you share this story with us? Yes, for sure. Um, So some of those decisions, one started from me just, again, uh, being at college by myself, away from my parents who were, you know, fairly strict and conservative. Um, so having the ability to do what I wanted to do, you know, which a lot of kids do when they go to college. Um, but I started hanging out, you know, in the city off of campus, meeting guys who were in my first time really dating. So meeting, you know, boys from the city and those boys would, you know, say things to me like, you know, where are you from? And I would say New York. And they would say, what part of New York? And I would say Harlem, right? And I said Harlem, I told you all that, you know, I did my music lessons in Harlem on the weekend and my parents had a, an apartment in Harlem. So opposed to me saying where I was from, really, <laughs> I repped Harlem because I wanted to be, you know, um, accepted. And so they would share things like, oh, well, oh, I buy my drugs from the city. And I was like, oh, where? And they're like Amsterdam Avenue. And I'm like, oh, I know where that is. And yeah, Amsterdam is the block over Common Avenue. However, I never walked down Amsterdam Avenue. But again, it was me trying to find a sense of connectedness of belonging. And so while there, um, these guys, they were drug dealers. And this was, again, a different lifestyle. And I became fascinated because for me, it was, wow, like they were businessmen. This is the way that I saw it. And they were offering a product And this is the way that it was explained to me. And I never had anyone in my family that I knew of that used drugs. 
and growing up, you know, my friends, they drank alcohol, you know, there was keg parties and things like that, but I didn't have anyone that I knew that actually used drugs. And so from there, I began selling drugs myself. And that went on um, throughout those years. And I, I learned later that, again, it was part of me just trying to fit in because obviously I shared my background and my upbringing. You know, I didn't have to go that route. I did not use drugs because I knew that the impacts that drugs had on people. Um, I didn't have a desire to try them. I never went through that, you know, phase of wanting to try things. I didn't do that. Um, again, it was just for me to want to fit in. And so while going through that, um, I started to learn about what was happening in the legal system because I got arrested the first time. And I thought, well, you know, I had money so I could bail out. And I did. And, you know, it would go away. And so it was this idea that as long as you had money, you had access to resources that you wouldn't be in jail. And most people that were in jail, in my mind at the time, were people who were addicts, um, which is the language I use then, you know, people who were thieves because they stole and people who were poor because they couldn't afford to get representation. And, you know, when you begin to, to live in a reality that is not um, reality, you know, you begin to, um, I guess, condition yourself to, to feel and to um, accept the particular way of life or behavior that innately, if you are a person that is grounded in morals, values, and principles, know that it is incorrect. And so that's what happened. Um, I began to justify my behavior because I thought it was okay, because I had an idea that people use drugs because they wanted to. Um, people, I didn't force anything on anyone. Um, this was their choice. And so therefore the decisions, the outcomes, the consequences was their own. And that um, ideology led me to um, being arrested when I was in my thirties um, in the middle of a federal drug sting operation and incarcerated in a county jail in uh, Richmond, Virginia. Well, because, you know, it escalated right to the point where there was involvement with the Sinaloa cartel and a number. I mean, it, this had really escalated to the point where um, where when you were, let's say, convicted um, and then eventually sent to prison, um, you know, you just spoke about how those who have money can find a way to get out, let's say. But you mm -hmm. chose you chose not to take that route. Um, so. You accepted well, or well, I did. Yeah. <laughs> I like I, I tried to speed. I spit, I tried to speed quickly through this uh, interview because I know that we don't have a lot of time. But let me talk about that. I didn't I I wanted to bail out originally um, when I got arrested at, for this federal drug sting operation. And I thought like the last time that I had access to resources and money and I would be able to go home and fight my case. And it would go away because it was a federal conspiracy charge. And I can talk more about that. Um, but I got to court and the judge said I was a drug queen pin and a threat to society. And he said no bail. And so I was stuck and trapped in this system. And I was forced to begin to look at the um, choices and decisions that I had made because I couldn't go anywhere. You know, I, I thought that I would be able to pay a bail like anything else. This was a nonviolent crime. There were no drugs. It was a sting operation. I was set up, all of the things, um, but the judge saw it differently. And while I was there, I began to learn about this new community. You know, when we talk about cities, this new community that now I was a part of, which was now this community inside of the prison. And I was there for 11 months and I was in a cell for 21 to 23 hours a day. Uh, because I was a federal detainee in a county jail. And I was only able to go out to take a shower, use the phone, um, or program classes. And so I would go out to teach a computer class. Um, there was also a religious studies class where I went to that once a week. And then there was these NA and AA classes, Narcotics Anonymous and Alcoholics Anonymous. 
And I decided to go selfishly just to get out the cell. And um, when I went, you know, I would listen to the sisters sharing their experiences. You know, hi, my name is such and such, and I'm an addict. And in my own arrogance, I would say, yeah, you know, you are in my mind. And I would just like kind of listen and sit back and, you know, not really hear them. You know, I was just like, you made these choices, whatever. And for whatever reason, one day I asked one of the sisters, like, why did you use drugs? You know, everybody knows is just say no, don't do drugs. Like, what would make you do that? And she said her father had been raping her and he gave her heroin for the first time and told her to take the heroin so the pain would go away. And then another sister said the only time she was able to spend time with her mom was when they smoked crack together. And immediately that changed my life. I broke down, apologized to them uh, for the harm that I caused. And while they tried to console me, I love those sisters and tell me, you didn't give it to us. I'm like, yeah, but I did to someone else, you know? Um, and then it's when I said, okay, I can try to go to trial and fight this. I was facing 20 years or I can plead guilty because I was and accept responsibility and make amends for the harms that I had caused over the last decade, probably at that time. And I pled guilty. And then I was sentenced and end up going to federal prison. So eventually I did accept responsibility. It wasn't my first initial. I wanted to fight it, um, but God had a different plan. Well, I mean, I think uh, your story is a powerful one because you did, um, as you said, I guess, when you were confronted with uh, those that were on the receiving end, um, you know, of 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 your kind of transactional relationship with the drugs, which was sort of yeah. distance, right? You realized, in fact, um, that you played a part in this and then assumed responsibility. And for that, um, I think, uh, I think in the end, one has to be grateful because uh, what you do as a result of your stay in federal prison, but then, you know, what, what, what you decide to do once you come out, I think are a real learning lesson for many. But let me just dwell a little bit longer on your time in federal okay. prison, um, where really you gained a firsthand view of the American prison system. And I've heard you speak about this um, personally and in interviews where you've stated that really that system is broken and that its goal is really not to rehabilitate but to perpetuate incarceration. Um, tell, tell us why you believe this. Yeah, and you know, I, it's funny you said that because I was doing an interview just yesterday and I said, you know, I used to say that the system is broken, but actually the system is not. The system is, was designed to work exactly the way it is working. It like came as an epiphany because it's, you know, the system was created as it resulted to uh, slave labor and ending slavery. And after slavery was ended, then as part of the um, 13th Amendment, the incarceration system was put in place and that involuntary servitude, um, which was, you know, forced labor, um, was only given for someone who was incarcerated, which is why you saw this kind of uptick in people going to prison and working for free. And then corporations, and this is why, you know, it started becoming huge business because you have free labor working. And so it was never designed to that point to rehabilitate. It was designed to continue to bring people in a system in order to make sure that they're able to do what either that state, that city, that county, or that corporation needs, right? At little to no cost. And what I saw through my experience was just that people working, you know, five cents an hour for 40 hour work weeks. Um, you know, there were people who sometimes didn't get paid at all, but you were forced to work in different institutions. Uh, for example, where I was in the federal system, they had Unicor, which is federal prison industries. And what we did was we built radio mount for the U.S. military. Now, I was a grade one, which is how they do government grade um, positions. I was a grade one because of my experience, and I was able to use SAP, which is a program that the government uses because I had worked for Amtrak, and I worked on SAP before, so I knew it. 
Um, so I came in making $100 a month, which was huge, considering that women who were actually making these radio amounts by hand were making $20 a month, working 40-hour work weeks. But what I did see through that as the lead inventory clerk was that we were getting contracts at that institution to build these radio amounts that were millions of dollars. But yet we were making $20 a month. And it was it just blew my mind because I just could not understand how this was legal. So I was like, well, who is the criminal here? You know, and I remember us being one day um, there was an audit happening on the on the parts that were in the uh, warehouse and they were rushing to take parts that were not in inventory in the computer and put them in a truck. And the truck was parked outside of the um, the warehouse. So when the auditors came in to look and see what was there, that any additional parts that they were really selling out of off market and pocketing money that we were responsible for taking and really stealing these parts and putting them outside. And I told them I was not doing it. And they said, well, you know, this is a direct order. I said, what are you going to do? Lock me up? I'm, like, I'm already in jail. I'm not doing it. So you want me to commit a crime? You want me, and I'm not even in here for this. <laughs> in order to, to, to suit a need of what you want, I, I just refused to do it. Of course, they didn't lock me up because I was already locked up. But it was just this idea of um, just warehousing people without access to education, um, forcing labor, without access to support on mental health treatment. People were just as either self-medicating because, you know, drugs come in the prison or they were being prescribed medications and walking around like zombies just so they didn't have to deal with the trauma that brought them into incarceration or the trauma of even being there. Wow, Topeka, there was a lot in that response. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I mean, you have access to information um, that I certainly don't have. I think there's a lot that you said there. Probably a whole radio show could be de de dedicated to this. I think in listening to our conversation up until this point, I, I don't think that you are advocating for um, not taking responsibility for uh, wrongdoing. You know, certainly in a, in a civil society, there has to be ways for us to hold citizens accountable for their actions, right? So, you know, you committed these acts, right, which are considered a felony, and then you were sent to jail, right? Um, so I, I don't hear in your answer that that there isn't a level of responsibility, let's say, on the person who's being incarcerated, right? What I am hearing, mm -hmm. though, is that we need to look at this system more holistically, you know, how I'm, I'm listening to you describing, you know, government contracts, right? I'm listening you, to you describing, you know, employment, which, you know, uh, on these government contracts and how are they handled and who's administrating them and what kind of compensation are we giving to those in prison? And then furthermore, I'm hearing about the question of rehabilitation, like what happens, you know, are, are, are these women in your case being trained so that when they exit this system, when they've paid their dues, there's a way for them to transition into society. I think these are the bigger questions. And I'm Absolutely. actually, I'm actually excited to be able to talk more about this because, you know, when we return, we're going to take a short break. I'm going to continue this fascinating conversation with Topeka, where she is going to share with us um, some of the fantastic work that she's doing as part of her Ladies of Hope Ministries. But she's also going to speak about some of these legislative victories. I mean, you've mm -hmm. really put yourself in the rink to be able to transform legislation that could, in fact, assist um, incarcerated women not only while they are in jail, but more importantly, as they transition back into society. So you're not yeah. going to want to miss this conversation. Please tune in in just a few minutes. I think we have a few more minutes till break. And so oh, just before oh, you we run, yeah, just before we run to break, I have two points. And okay, I promise yes. I'll make it quick to what you said. Um, no, I think that people are need or people have to be held accountable for for anything that they do to cause harm. However, I also think it's our responsibility to create alternatives to incarceration that hold people accountable while healing them. Because 95% of all people who go to prison will come home one day. So how do you want them to come home, right? And to your point about women in incarceration, 
There was knitting, crocheting, plastics, canvas, and beading as the adult continuing education courses for us. There's no way <laughs> that those skills are going to help us to be competitive within a market or workforce where you have people who have never had a criminal conviction that you are going up against. So to share, you know, I just wanted to kind of hone in that meme that we had and give people something to think about during break that yes, we have to hold people accountable, but over incarcerating people, warehousing people, causing more harm to people, criminalizing people because of poverty, because of substance misuse, all of these things are not ways in order to not only create public safety, but to heal the people in our communities that have experienced tremendous trauma um, or those of us who have caused it. There's no way to do that without actually creating alternatives of healing, rehabilitation and accountability, which is what we have created. And we will talk about that after break. Okay, we'll be right back with Topeka Sam. Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Did you know that the quality of our daily lives is directly influenced by the design of our built environment? Our homes, our work, the way we move, and where we play are all shaped by the design of our cities. This thought-provoking new show from architect, urban designer, and educator, Carrie Pennebod examines the complex forces that shape the making of our physical world. Lively conversations with leading experts in a variety of fields engage some of the greatest challenges facing our cities today, including climate change, affordable housing, embedded technologies, infrastructure design, architecture and the arts, urban policy, social mobility, and much, much more. Tune in every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, so that together we can design a better world. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to On Cities with Carrie Pennebon. We hope you're enjoying today's episode. Now back to the show with Carrie. Welcome back. I'm continuing my conversation with Topeka Sam. And before the break, she was sharing her incredible story of growing up and eventually um, serving time in federal prison. And I think the second half of this conversation, I would like to focus on the work that Topeka has been dedicated uh, to since her release from federal prison. Um, so Topeka, about a little over five years ago and following your release from federal prison, you founded the Ladies of Hope Ministries. What compelled you to start this in, uh, organization and what would you say is its mission? Yeah, so what compelled me to start the organization was my time in federal prison. Um, all the things that I saw that women had went through. And I should say just my time incarcerated. So when I was in the county jail um, that I described earlier, it was incarcerated with poor, black, brown, white women, low socioeconomic backgrounds, low levels of education, no access to opportunity. In the federal prison, I was incarcerated with black, brown, white women, doctors, lawyers, senators, judges, high levels of socioeconomic background, high levels of education, but all of the same underlying issues, sexual trauma and violence, substance misuse, early childhood trauma, and mental health issues. And all of the sisters that I met in my entire journey were scared about where they would go when they came home. They didn't know where they would live. Some would be subjected to go back into sex work. 
just to have somewhere to live, go back into abusive relationships, just to have a roof over their head, um, would have to go into the shelter system, which is, you know, more traumatic than even incarceration in some cases. Um, and so God had placed on my heart one night to start this organization and stated it would be called the Ladies of Hope Ministries. And that I would do two things. It would be create housing for women and girls transitioning out of any of these systems um, and and build platforms for women to use their voice to share their experiences. Because I felt that if people heard the voices and saw the faces of women who were incarcerated, that there would not be the number and the amount of women and girls who were in the system. Um, there's an 800% increase of the incarceration rate of women and girls over the last 20 years. And so when you think about that increase, which is still happening today, you realize it's because people don't know. We don't think about women. We think about prison. We think about men. And so our vision for the organization, we say, is an EPIC vision. The EPIC is an acronym that stands for Ending Poverty and Incarceration of Women and Girls Globally. And we do that our work uh, through two buckets. One is direct service and sustainability, and the other is advocacy and engagement. And what we know is that I cannot advocate for myself or anyone else unless my basic human rights are met first, which is access to safe and affordable housing, um, access to healthy food, an equitable opportunity and a growth-focused career, and also quality health care. And so we focused on building out housing and food program to combat food insecurity and professional and personal development for workforce training and also access to quality health care, a doula initiative for women to be able to uh, support birthing people incarcerated in prison, but in community who want alternative birthing practices to have better outcomes, uh, health outcomes for maternal outcomes for women of color. Um, because we know the maternal morbidity rates that happen uh, for women in community who don't have access to quality health care. And then our advocacy work, you know, we wanted to change the conditions of confinement so that they were more humane. We wanted to make sure that um, people heard our voices and knew what was happening. So we created a speakers bureau that trained over 100 women to date on how to share their stories, but also be paid as public speakers. Um, because often we're not valued for our stories, but yet people um, are, that's a living that people can make, right? Like we have an, an ambassador's program where we train women on the legislative process. You know, what is a bill? How do you draft and write a bill? What type of legislation do you want to pass that's going to change the outcomes on any poverty and incarceration? Because we know that poverty, whether it's poverty uh, of resource or poverty of mind, is a driver to incarceration. And so once we're able to combat that, then we're also able to make sure that we're ending these systems of abuse and violence against women and girls. Topeka, let's dwell a little bit on um, the safe housing space, right? You talked about these kind of fundamental needs that we all need to be able to, you know, live more fruitful lives. And um, in as part of your organization, you've coined the term hope house, for these safe housing spaces, places, buildings in the cities that you're um, looking to do your work. And you opened up the first space in New York City. Um, can mm -hmm. you describe this project and how it works? Sure. So HOPE um, is an acronym for us also, and I can go through the letters of HOPE. But HOPE, we feel like, you know, if you have HOPE, you have nothing. Um, and if in the Bible, there's a verse that says, you know, there's even hope for a tree that if you cut its branches, it will re-sprout again. And so when I saw that, I said, OK, so all of this is around, you know, a woman being able to get to a safe place to transform her life. And so oh, hope the H is for help and healing. And we want to give like three months for each letter. So it's up to a year. Um, sometimes 18 months that a sister stays at the house and then we transition them into more permanent housing. But it's hope and healing, opportunity and optimism, a P is for potential and power, and E is for exit. And through those, we also do different types of training and development. We're teaching women on ways to heal the traumas that they've experienced and also being able to empower themselves, you know, to exit the house, provide opportunities through educational resources, workforce development and training. 
um, and helping them to see their own potential because often women are told that they're not enough and that we're not worthy of certain things, especially women who've gone through these different systems of abuse and violence. And so pouring into our sisters is what's important for us. And so the Bronx, we started our first house because we, you know, I came back from, from New York into New York um, and looking in the five boroughs, you know, the Bronx was the borough where when people are released from prison and jail in New York, the Bronx is the, the borough where it's saturated the population. And then we began uh, to scale the organization. I always had a vision of wanting to have a house in every single state in the country. I'm a, a big visionary um, because the need is great because incarceration happens everywhere. And so um, we started in New York and we have houses in New Orleans, Louisiana, uh, Maryland also, and then hopefully Miami. And now um, also Trinidad. Um, and we looked at these different areas specifically because of the numbers, the rate of women in incarceration and also the lack of resources for women returning. And so we saw where we could make a great impact and where the need was great. Yeah, well, uh, in fact, that's how we met, right? <laughs> our mm-hmm. our architectural office has been working with you on the development of a 20-unit transitional housing project in Miami. And I learned from you, actually, that you chose Miami. And I think it's probably but you can clarify the reason that you've chosen some of these cities is because they have the highest rates of female minority incarceration in the country. Um, Yeah. And, and I've come to realize how challenging the building of uh, these projects are because your project in the Bronx um, was an existing, uh, an existing building, right. That you had retrofitted and that you improved uh, and I believe, how many beds do you offer there or how many women are housed in the Bronx projects? Eight, eight. So it's five bedrooms and, and actually all of the houses so far, they're five bedrooms. So we have eight women at max in the houses. Um, and to your point, why Miami was we were looking at the rates of women going in prison, but also the rates of women coming home. For example, in New York, uh, there's about 25,000 women and girls who are released from prison and jail each year. And in Florida, there's 125,000 women and girls that are released from prison and jail each year. And so, as you see, the number is incredibly um, great. But outside of that, there were not a lot of programs that focus on resources for women and girls. In the middle of the pandemic, um, you know, I'm a New Yorker and they call us a transplant. You know, I came to Miami. And but it also uh, the cost of living increased because of that. And HUD had announced Miami uh, being in a state of emergency as one of the highest places to live, even over New York. Right. And I was just like, wow. So if there was already, you know, these barriers now, how is anybody going to have a place to live? You're coming from prison. It's so many people coming from a prison, not enough housing. And then, you know, Florida is the South. And while New York may be a little bit more progressive, you know, in the South, when it comes to people with convictions, people don't want to rent to people with convictions. It doesn't matter if you've been removed from incarceration 20 years or not, or or 20 days. There is a huge bias um, against people with convictions. And so, you know, for me, it was like I was tired. It's exhausting running around really begging people. Can you please rent to people with convictions opposed to being, you know what, why don't I just build it myself? That way I don't have to, you know, beg people. I know that we all deserve a second chance and many people deserve thirds. You know, I thank God I got a third or fourth chance. You know, I wouldn't be sitting where I am today. Um, So that's why Miami specifically um, and, you know, meeting you has been life changing because the vision of what is created for this particular development project is not only thoughtful because people deserve to have a beautiful space to live. Like when we think about those of us, like even myself, though, I went to prison, I was privileged going in. I was privileged while in and coming home. I was privileged to go back home to my parents to a safe place. Now, while, you know, I was 40 and living with my parents and I wasn't living with them since I was 18. So that was a bit of an adjustment 
it was still a safe place, you know? Um, and so many women and girls who are already the most vulnerable population don't have that safety. And then women who are coming back who, um, you know, there's, especially in Florida, you have different ethnicities, you know, different language barriers, you know, a lot of women who are coming from different countries um, and they need that type of support network. And so, you know, we've been really, really just getting our feet planted um, in Miami, meeting other organizations and people just opening and welcoming us with their arms wide open like we need you. So, Well, I, I think you're you're pointing a lot of challenges, of course, you know, uh, the rising des- uh, densification of global cities, Miami being no exception, you know, really does increase uh, the cost of living in cities like ours. And, um, and there is a shortage of affordable housing. Um, but I think what your story can teach us is that, yes, when we have big challenges, we can either be crippled by them or we can say, what role can we play in making a difference? Even if that difference starts with one room, eight rooms or a 20 unit new building, um, <laughs> each step, I think, uh, can make a difference. Now, I, I also think that um, having now worked a bit with you and others on in this sector, that the non-for-profits may have a role to play in the development of affordable housing in cities for a number of reasons, because your funding sources can come from different places than, let's say, for-profit development. There can be mm-hmm. collaborative private public partnerships, even um, partnerships with the city where costs of land can be reduced and therefore making the cost of development. Um, And I think your model, I mean, the cost of development less. And then I think your model is also very valuable because it's talking about a holistic, sustainable model, because yours Mm -hmm. is not only about safe housing, but you partner with employers to ensure that the women in your homes in your houses have a way of getting jobs and so that they can be, um, you know, contributing members of society. So I think yes. really, uh, you know, for those of you that are listening that um, haven't heard of Topeka or her organization, I would please encourage you to go onto her website, you know, donate if you can, or, you know, reach out to her if you have ways of connecting with her to help, you know, advance this cause. Um, actually, you're doing you're you're making fronts not only you know physically in the design of housing in cities and in the production of networks you know economic networks that can make you know the lives of these women in fact more sustainable but you've also i think understood that for there to be meaningful change there has to be changes in policy there has to be changes mm-hmm. in legislation and so you haven't just thought about this, you've actually engaged this. And and mm-hmm. my understanding is that you've developed 20 pieces of legislation um, to help with the things that you think uh, could be improved. So can you tell us a bit more about the specifics of some of these uh, legislation or legislative changes? Yes, for sure. So what we focused on was dignity for incarcerated women. Um, what we know, you know, there's a movement of abolition you know, shutting prisons in. Some people believe that that's necessary. You know, I believe that we need to create other spaces where people can be healed and be held accountable. That's my belief. But while we, I, you know, we talked earlier that these systems that have been created, um, have been created to do exactly what they're doing, and it's not helpful for us as a whole, as a country, um, that I am focusing on changing the conditions of confinement to make sure that they're more humane while all of these other, you know, opportunities for change are happening, because I know what it was like to live in those prisons. And so for women specifically, you know, we focus on ending shackling of women during child labor. This is a barbaric practice that no woman should, or or child should have to endure, right? Um, the fact that we Where's a woman going when she's in childbirth, like in labor? That just that made no sense to us. And the stress that it causes on a woman's body and on the newborn child is just terrible. Um, so we were able to pass that to end the shackling in 15 states um, and also get it in federal legislation. So no woman in federal prison who is pregnant would have to be shackled during child labor or during transporting um, during, you know, doctor's appointments and things of that nature. 
also making sure women had access to hygiene products at no cost to them. We actually would have to pay for tampons and pads when we were incarcerated. Now, men don't have to do that. Um, but outside of that, why should that be a cost to us? That is something that we naturally have to go through. And while, you know, there's period poverty and all these things that we see in the country, why are you forcing, forcing the incarcerated population of women to have to pay for products? Um, and so we were able to pass that um, into legislation, making sure that children are uh, can keep uh, keeping connected to their parents. You know, you have mothers, 85% of all women who are incarcerated are um, mothers and primary caregivers of dependent children. But putting a woman in, in prison is taking her away from her children. And that's taking them sometimes thousands of miles away. So what we did was in the legislation, we requested that we keep women within a 500 mile radius so that they have an opportunity to keep that family reunification on and keep that bond with their children while being in incarcerated. And so those are some of the things that we've worked on. We've also been integral in looking at some probation and parole reform, because when people have done their prison sentence, then they come back and they're incarcerated in their community through probation and parole. You know, there's the system of incarceration where there are 2.2 million people incarcerated in prisons and jails in this country. But then there are 4.6 million people who are incarcerated through probation and parole. And then there are 70 million people who have criminal convictions in this country. So when you think about the number, it's one in three adults has an impacted loved one or impacted person in their community, that you understand that this is a, a large problem and we really need to be thinking about the rights of those who paid their debt to society. You know, let's face it, I went to prison. Yes, I committed a crime. I was sentenced to prison. For a particular amount of time, I did the time. The judge felt that my time was done. I was released from prison. The president of the United States felt I've done an incredible work and decided to give me a pardon. But yet still, I face barriers, even today, with certain types of loans where people want to discriminate against me and say, no, because you have a conviction. I'm like, I have a pardon. You're not supposed to look at it. Doesn't matter. You know, um, going out of the country and returning sometimes they they will stop me customs and border control and will try to go through every single thing. Even one tried to take the heels off my shoes because they said it was possible I might be transporting drugs back in the country, which, by the way, I didn't do even when I was doing the things I was doing. But it's the ideologies of people's own personal biases when you're in these systems. So it is passing these legislation. Right now, our organization is um, focusing on a stopping and ending strip searches in prisons because they're, again, a different way that you can make sure that someone is not bringing in uh, paraphernalia or other contraband by doing body scanners, right? You can do a body scanner like you see in the airports now. You don't make people strip to go on a plane. Why are you re-traumatizing people? You know, um, taking the dignity away from women and men, making them squat and open themselves up for what? You know, it's just it's 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 terrible and it's 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 very traumatizing. So we're doing now a whole campaign to try to pass legislation and hopefully some of the prisons and jails will just change this practice um, because we want to have healthier people in our communities. So. Tabika, I think earlier you talked about how you wanted to spread the model of housing, Hope House, to cities across America. You mentioned a number of these cities. Um, so maybe could you tell us uh, what's on the boards right now? What are you working on um, for Hope House as, it's, as it searches to spread the, this new housing model across America? Yeah. So, I mean, always searching for funding and for partnerships and collaboration whether that's through, you know, corporate donors, um, because corporations should also be responsible for making sure that the communities that they're in and a part of and their consumers are being supported. So whether it's that, um, it's per partners, um, high net worth individuals, it's foundation funding, it's, you know, public part, public private partnerships. We're searching for that. Um, additionally, some additional uh, things that I'm personally focusing on 
Um, we just founded a digital bank called Fresh, where we're offering free checking accounts for justice impacted people because all the predatory practices that are happening with people who are and have justice involvement. So again, why do I have to keep going through this? Let's create the solution. Also a healthcare solution um, with a company called Parks Insurance Company that provides free healthcare to all people who are working within the justice system. So it's all of these things that we are doing um, that is creating these solutions for people that are actually uh, previously incarcerated and their families. So we're coming to the last two minutes or so. Um, my last question to all my guests is, what is your favorite city and why, Topeka? All right, I have a few. So I'll start with New York. New York is the greatest city in the world. People say it no matter where you go. So I'm going to start there and I'm biased because I'm from there. Um, Miami, I have gotten a great love and affinity for Miami. The weather, the people, the diversity, the grind, the hustle. There's so many different cultures and, you know, people just, it's just the energy. I just love Miami, something about it, and the sun and the palm trees. Um, I love Baltimore. Baltimore is a city that is a city of love. Um, you know, I've caused harm in Baltimore, but I'm doing so much now that is helping to create healing in Baltimore. And so I love Baltimore. I love the people of Baltimore. Um, so I'll just keep it in the U.S. Those are yeah. like my three top cities <laughs> that yeah. I love to go to. Well, having been born in New York, I can sympathize and <laughs> calling Miami home. I can definitely sympathize in Baltimore. I need to go visit sometime in the near future. But thank you, Topeka. Really, thank you for all your work and really for your great example um, that I think can teach us how our greatest challenges can become the avenues to our greatest contributions and gifts to society. Thank you so much. Um, don't miss the show next week where I will be speaking with the filmmaker and educator Sanjeev Chatterjee. Please listen to us on Spotify, Apple, iTunes, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcast. And if you feel so inclined, please follow us on Instagram at the On Cities podcast. Thank you again, Topeka, and I'll see everyone next week. Thanks for listening to On Cities with Carrie Pennebod. We hope today's episode has given you some insight into how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Please join us again next week 